Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we hear from an Estonian tech entrepreneur and investor on his personal journey through big tech. So my only half-joking, I say that my strategy has been to invest in various promising AI teams so I could have like a ticket to hang around in their kitchen and talk about AI safety. That was Jan Tallinn, a founding engineer at Skype and Kazar. He was also an early investor in DeepMind and more recently helped set up the Centre for the Study of Existential Risk at the University of Cambridge. He came into the studio to discuss his career and the role he would like tech to play in helping ensure a better future for humanity. Jan, welcome. You were born in Estonia and you made your name and your fortune as one of the founders of Skype. Could you tell us a little about how that came about? Yeah, so Skype has actually like pretty long backstory. One little known fact is that the engineering team, they were all my schoolmates at one point, the founding engineering team. So once private entrepreneurship became legal in Soviet Union, I found myself running a software company that ended up doing computer games for a decade. And uh, once the business ran out, because the computers got more and more powerful, so programming became less important compared to the artwork and story, we kind of ended up looking for new things to do and met Niklas and Janus, who became kind of the main force behind Skype and before that, uh, Kazan. So uh, we ended up kind of collaborating with them and uh, did a few projects, including Kazan and Skype with them. Obviously, they didn't do too badly, did they? If you were setting up a business today, what would you look at? If you were an entrepreneur in our modern times, what would you look to do? I do think that there are some interesting opportunities in nanotechnology, for example. I do have some investments in that space. And kind of automation of manufacturing seems to be like a valuable thing to look at because today's AI is not very good with dealing very loose environment, but manufacturing is fairly predictable environment that AI could add quite a lot of value. And you invested recently in a company called Pactum in Europe. Can you tell us about that? Right. So this is a company that was started, among others, one Skype alumnus who already had done one company after leaving Skype. And it fits really well, my investment strategy, which is kind of invest in people that I already know or with people that I already know to kind of save time for other activities. And Pactum is doing automated negotiations. So the idea is that you are AI-assisted negotiations. In game theory, there is this concept called Pareto Optimal Outcome, which is a situation where no side can unilaterally improve the outcome. And turns out there's a bunch of research that humans aren't actually great at reaching Pareto Optimal Outcomes when it comes to negotiations. Therefore, there are solutions that both parties or like whatever multiple parties would actually prefer, but they just can't find it. So like uh, the idea is to introduce an element of automation to help humans find. So what kind of negotiations are we talking about? Trying to negotiate a pay rise from your boss or a legal contract or what? Yeah, so I think their current focus is on service economy, where there are lots of cookie cutter agreements to be had. So like there isn't a lot of resources to focus on every individual contract. So they necessarily will be suboptimal. And the idea is that by having more software assistance in the process, the participants, ride sharing drivers, for example, they could have like more flexibility and thereby would achieve better outcomes in terms of their employment. 
So do you think this would help rebalance the relationship between employers and employees in the gig economy? I think the first goal really is to make sure that there is not value being lost by creating suboptimal and too constrained contracts, for example, like Price is not the only thing that is the subject of contracts. There might be some other things like working hours or how many days can you get free, etc. And some young parents, those might be like super valuable, whereas some people who don't have kids, these are not very valuable. So immediately you have different preferences going into a negotiation that aren't currently being serviced. There have been some very interesting startups that have come out of your country in Estonia and elsewhere across Europe in recent years. And the whole debate at the moment is, is Europe really getting its act together in tech? How do you view what's going on in Europe relative to what's going on the West Coast of America or China? Yeah, I don't think I have like a very good visibility into kind of European startup scene in general. Most of my own investments actually are in the US because that's most of my sort of contact or network is. But also, obviously, I do have a significant slice of my portfolio in Estonia and Estonian startups. And Estonia, indeed, seems to be like definitely punching above its weight when it comes to the startup scene. And I think there's several sort of positive feedback loops there that once you have enough startup entrepreneurs, for example, you no longer have a social stigmas against doing your own thing versus finding a secure job, something that I certainly had in my life, uh, like criticism from my parents at some point, which was kind of fair. I had just a young daughter and a uh, you know, family to feed and then I was like dabbling in games. <laughs> And parents are a lot more relaxed in Estonia now, are they, when they kids? Exactly. That, that is my bet, although I haven't done any studies or anything. <laughs> and you were one of the early investors in DeepMind in London. How did that come about? So that was part of my strategy, which I continue. Because I am concerned about negative externalities from ever-increasing technology, specifically from AI, but also other technologies. And I do think that at least 10 years ago, when this topic was you know, fairly new to many people, I found that like one thing that I could do in order to help was to kind of leverage my brand, so to speak. So I could talk to the people who are concerned about where AI is going and then kind of turn around and walk up to Demis or people like Demis, which I kind of literally did at the conference. This is Demis Azalbe, is one Demis. of the founders of Exactly, and CEO of DeepMind. And so, yeah, I walked up to Demis at the conference and they were raising money at that point. Or actually, like I just barely missed the round that was just about to close. And so I invested in, uh, did like a bridge investment in DeepMind in 2011. So my only half joking, I say that my strategy has been to invest in various promising AI teams so I could have like a ticket to hang around in their kitchen and talk about AI safety. <laughs> DeepMind clearly promised some fairly extraordinary benefits to mankind if they can apply their AI to real world sectors. What do you think of the upside of AI? What is the real potential? I think the really positive potential is kind of hard to fathom almost because we really might be talking about something that is smarter than humans and understanding us better than we understand ourselves. So I'm going to want to be conservative in drawing a picture like humans have notoriously been really bad at imagining utopian futures because a lot of the dystopias are just utopias with something wrong about them. <laughs> But I do think that the term that's used in existential risk circles is flourishing. What does it mean to have human civilization flourish? I think it's likely that it will involve spreading beyond this planet and bringing life to the rest of the universe, which currently, personally, I think is mostly lifeless. 
you're also focusing a lot on the downside risks of AI and other big risks in the world at the moment, to such an extent that you co-founded both the Centre for Existential Risks at Cambridge University, along with Martin Rees, who's a previous guest on Tectonic, and also the Future of Life Institute in Boston in the US. Why did you do this? Why do you think we need to focus on these issues? That's also has been part of my strategy for the last 10 years to look at people who are willing to do the homework of technologists, uh, do the things that are important, but technologists are not necessarily directly motivated by the market to do those, and basically see how I can help. And the two main things that I've been able to help with is just donating money to them, helping them financially, but also leveraging my brand. And both uh, Cambridge Centre in the UK as well as Cambridge Centre in the US they came about because I knew the main people who were behind those centers, Hugh Price in UK and Max Tegmark in the US. And it was their initiative and they asked me to come along to support them. And I was super glad to accept them. Because How much have you put into both these institutes? I think the order of magnitude is half a million or something. And what are the biggest risks you think humanity is facing at the moment, if you were to list the top three? So first, we have to draw this distinction of it just talking about merely catastrophic risks. Climate change is obviously the most uh, well-accepted one, I would say. But this is like a merely catastrophic. It's kind of unlikely to merely kill everyone, yes. It turns out, as Martin Rees likes to point out, that there's a difference between killing 99% of people and 100% of people, and the uh, difference is not 1%. So the idea is that if everyone dies, there will be no future when it comes to humanity, at least, if not biology. That's a cheery thought. Yeah, so the argument then goes that we really should focus on making sure that even if we face catastrophes, those catastrophes are not going to end the human species. So with that framing, if we kind of brush aside merely catastrophic, then I think existential risks at the top are basically runaway AI, synthetic biology, basically creating organisms that evolution never had any incentive to create, but humans might, and they might just be completely destructive to the species. And third one is sort of unknown unknowns, because like both AI and bio risks are less than 100 years old, so it's likely when we're talking about this century that it might have some new ones. How can you study unknown unknowns? You can't do much, I guess, but like there are still some things that have been studied. Basically, what you can do is you can look at the kind of rest of the universe. How does it look like? For example, there was this consideration of, is the fabric of the universe stable? And turns out, I think, Max Tegmark was involved in this study, but I might be kind of mixing up things. turns out that you can actually look at the evidence. For example, you can look at the age where you find yourself in. If you find yourself in a fairly, very young universe, it's actually more likely that this is unstable. There's an argument that if the universe were unstable, we should have seen a younger universe than we actually see. So flipping it, which means that actually... Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. The universe does not seem to be unstable on the like, level of physics. So this is like example of this. 
I mean, you have to be fairly abstract when you want to kind of uh, know what are the constraints for unknown unknowns. Must lead to some interesting seminars on this subject. But let's talk about the runaway AI that you're talking about. Now, I mean, some people would argue that this is never going to become a problem because we're never going to achieve the moment of singularity. What makes you think this is an urgent problem that we ought to address today? I mean, I don't think it's urgent. When people say that we are nowhere near an AI, I tend to agree when it comes to superhuman AI. But the problem is that we don't know how much time we need. So the person who got me into this AI safety scene, Eliezer Rutkowski in California, he says that, well, if somebody says this is something that we're nowhere near, so like, why are we actually paying attention to that? To answer that is that, so what is your business plan? When do you think it's the correct time to start studying these things? And if they don't have a good answer, well, it means like they haven't thought about it. And so I think it's important to both factor in how much time we have and how much time we need. And I do think that there are things that can be worked on productively already, even though we might have quite a bit of time. Could you paint for us what is the most plausible risk that you could see from runaway AI? Paint the scenario for us. So I think that there are two broad categories. One is misuse of AI, having very powerful capabilities in bad hands. And my really big concern there even though I don't think it's existential again, but it gives like an illustration of the problem, is a military AI. The big problem with use of AI in military is that it takes humans out of the loop. And the big problem with humans out of the loop is that then you no longer need humans to have military. And what differentiates the state actors and non-state actors is that state actors have humans. They have more humans. They have like more 19-year-olds than the non-state actors. So in some ways, by engaging in AI arms race, so to speak, like literal AI arms race, the state actors will be enabling non-state actors to become more powerful. And we see that already in cyber warfare, that we have attacks and it's kind of hit and miss whether state actors or non-state actors, and quite often we'll never know who was doing this attack. And it would be like really bad idea to have that in kind of physical reality. So that's a misuse. And then the other big category that I'm focused on is, is it possible to have AI lab accidents? So basically put an AI to like a training regime, for example, is doing architecture search, which is a big thing in AI right now. That is like AI is trying to find AI architectures, like in a way that evolution accidentally found us. And we might come up with something that was not human created because it was AI that did it. And it might be uncontrollable in some sense. So that's almost a Nick Bostrom paperclip problem that he posited that you could have a computer system that was instructed to create paperclips and then just goes completely out of control and consumes all the world's resources in order to make more paperclips. Right. So that is an illustration of a very powerful system in the service of a very trivial goal. What I've just described is basically AI research finding something that is hard to control in the same sense that evolution found humans. And now evolution finds humans very hard to control if you were to anthropomorphize evolution. Now, you just used the key word there, control. Is it possible to devise systems that really introduce effective controls, do you think? I think it's possible to a degree, definitely. If you put effort into making systems more containable, more controllable, more predictable, then you will get at least marginal improvement in the expected controllability and robustness. And it's also like, this is like one topic that is also valuable in the short term. You want systems that are kind of robust once you're going to put them in the field so that there's like a alignment of short-term AI capabilities research and long-term AI safety research, which is a great thing to have. But indeed, if you're talking about superhuman systems, it's debatable whether they can be controlled by mere humans. So there, I think the more 
general approach is what's now known as AI alignment, which means that making sure that once we have something that is smarter than us, and by definition is kind of able to control the future better than we are, making sure that its idea of a good future kind of aligns with our idea of a good future is or more precisely should be if we were smarter. So you get into philosophy really quickly uh, when you start thinking about these things. Now, Stuart Russell, a professor of computer science at Berkeley, has written a fascinating book on this very subject called Human Compatible and the Control Problem of AI. It's really a kind of a call for the AI industry and researchers in this field to design what he calls provably beneficial AI. But on the other hand, he says that trying to do this in practice is going to be phenomenally difficult because you and I as individuals change our mind about what our preferences are. We often have wrong preferences. How do we get around that? How can we optimize for human preference? I think Stuart also gives one approach that might be very useful. is to kind of outsource a lot of that to the AI itself. So one thing that Stuart argues for in the book is that instead of building AIs as we have done until now, which is like building them in a way that they have no uncertainty about uh, the goal that they are given. And AI researchers don't really think about what their goal will be that will be given to their AIs. They just think about how to build an AI that's as competent as possible in servicing the goal that will be provided later. We should be, and we as an AI industry, should be building AIs that are inherently uncertain about what their goal actually is, because we are not great at knowing it. So AI shouldn't trust humans to know that the goal was correct, that was given to them. And it turns out that's actually a mathematically expressible formal idea that you can create an AI that has uncertainty about this objective function. So in other words, because an AI system is checking back with humanity that it's actually optimizing the right problem. Indeed. So like if it gets a radical idea that before kind of executing it, it would actually kind of check with humans because it just wants to be more certain that it is right before it proceeds to, I don't know. I think Stuart uses the example of fixing climate change while also turning the sky orange. So it's something that we probably wouldn't want to, but we almost certainly will forget to specify. Yeah. You mentioned climate change there, which I guess in your categorization would be merely catastrophic. What do you think technology can do about climate change? Is there a technological solution, do you think? So I do think that the eventual outcomes will almost certainly be determined by technology. Either we will find a way to fix things technologically, or technology will just be out of control and kind of take over the job of ruining climate. What do you mean by that? I mean, how does that scenario play out? So I do think that uh, many, if not most, or if not all, existential risks manifest themselves as environmental catastrophe to us. If you think about it, like if we are exterminating pests, this looks like an environmental catastrophe to them. We don't build small cockroach-like robots with laser eyes to go after them. We just spray the pesticide, which is an environmental catastrophe. And one abstract concern about the very powerful AIs I have is that AIs, they don't care about the environment. The reason why we send robots to space or radioactive areas is that they don't care about the environmental parameters to the degree that we care about. So if we kind of end accidentally and hand over control over environment to AI, we better make sure that it's actually also feels constrained about what kind of changes it can introduce. But this is like an abstract argument. But I do think painting very specific scenarios has the risk of just being wrong because like specifics necessarily add detail. What are the most promising technologies that you think will help combat climate change? The obvious ones are solar energy getting cheaper. That's some like very encouraging 
science there, although I think there's a fair debate about like how scalable this eventually is compared to the actual growing needs of energy consumption. There are some interesting sequestering techniques that might work. I even have like one investment myself. We'll see how well that company will do. What's that in? How does it sequester? It's a company called Prometheus. It's a white combinator startup. They are doing carbon sequestering by using nanofilters. The idea is that if you do carbon sequestering in the traditional way, you would actually have a pretty high energy budget because you need to kind of heat things up in order to extract the carbon. Whereas they don't use heat. They use basically kind of mechanical microstructures and hopefully will get the price down that way. And the product they will get out is alcohol and from alcohol you can get your fuels pretty cheaply. So the, their hope is to create systems that are able to just pull fuel out of thin air. Second of your risk categories was synthetic biology. What can we do to minimize the risks from that? So I'm much less of an expert in biology and synthetic biology, so I don't have very confident opinions there. One thing that seems to be very worthwhile to think about is kind of like all sorts of detection techniques and defensive techniques. Can we develop constant monitoring about what organisms are we cohabiting with? And send quick kind of alert systems if there's something that's out of the ordinary, some novel organisms suddenly being detected in human bloodstream or something. So that seems like a very reasonable thing to develop. Are you overall optimistic that we can avoid these existential risks? I mean, it's fascinating how a lot of tech entrepreneurs have put a lot of money into these kind of centers around the world, that you have generated a lot of debate about some of these existential risks. Are you optimistic, given this level of debate, that we can fix on policies that can try to avert some of these risks? So I'm definitely optimistic for pragmatic reasons. You can divide the future into three different categories. One is the set of futures where regardless of what to do, you die. So like there's nothing you can do about it. There's no point in focusing on that future. Then there's like a optimistic futures where regardless of what to do, everything will be fine. Again, no point in focusing on that. You should focus on this slice between, which is futures that will turn out good if you actually put in the effort. So I am focusing exactly on this set of futures and by implications, I am also optimistic. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Jan. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Today we talked a bit about Stuart Russell and his new book, Human Compatible, Artificial Intelligence and the Problem of Control. I'm delighted to say that Stuart is our guest in next week's show, so make sure you don't miss it. In the meantime, we welcome comments and suggestions from listeners, so please email us at tectonic at ft.com and let us know what you think of the show. This episode of Tectonic is produced by Fiona Simon and Persis Love.